Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today, regular Front Porch contributor Michael Sauter takes over the mic to interview longtime Canadian radio broadcaster David Cayley. They'll be talking about Cayley's recent book on the life and thought of Yvonne Illich. To some of you, Illich is already a familiar figure, occupying a place in the Porcher Pantheon alongside the likes of Wendell Berry, Christopher Lash, Roger Scruton, and E.F. Schumacher. Others of you may be like me, and upon hearing the name think first of a Tolstoy novella you were made to read in high school. There could be far worse associations. Like the similar-sounding fictional character, the real-life Illich of the 20th century had a lot to say about what makes a good life and a good death. Similar to me, only to a much greater degree, Illich was a globe-trotting localist. Fluent in multiple languages, the Austrian-born scholar fled the Nazis in his youth. He would later become a parish priest in New York City, and he spent many years in Mexico. There, he often urged others to stay away, seeing ambassadors of modernity like the Peace Corps as doing more harm than good. Illich also taught at Penn State, and Penn State Press brings us David Kelly's latest book, Illich was living in Germany in 2002 when he died of cancer. Long a critic of the medical profession, an obituary at The Lancet described his opposition to, quote, the destruction of traditional ways of dealing with and making sense of death, pain, and sickness, end quote. Modern medicine was but one of his many targets. As that same obituary put it, Illich scythed his way through numerous institutions he believed outmoded. He was a priest who thought there were too many priests and a teacher of more than 50 years standing, who maintained that children learned best at home or in casual situations rather than through formal education. He also suggested that modern technology was oppressive, claiming, for example, that automobiles enslaved society and bicycles were a faster way to travel, end quote. Along his complex earthly journey, Illich gave several extended interviews to David Cayley, who made documentaries for the program Ideas on CBC Radio. Kelly took on big topics like religion and science and talked with scores of thinkers, including Wendell Berry, during his 30-year career as a broadcaster. But Illich occupied a special place of affection. What follows is the half hour or so of selections taken from a discussion between Mike Sauter and David Kelly. The full conversation can be heard and seen on the Front Porch website. So with that introduction, I turn the spittoon over to Mike. Thanks for pulling up a chair. Welcome. Uh, this is Mike Sauter with the great privilege of speaking with David Cayley, an author of many books, uh, most recently a book, Ivan Illich, An Intellectual Journey. Um, we're going to spend some time this morning talking about this book and talking about um, well, a few other things, including this time of COVID. Uh, but we might begin by having David introduce himself a little bit. Then I'm going to see how he might tie Illich's thought into Front Porch Republic. But first of all, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> Specifically, I mean, what was my career? Yeah, why don't you say like, uh, how about how you first, uh, you're a CBC broadcaster. Yes. Um, let me describe how I came to know you. Is that right, following that would people be a help. like- That would be a help. Okay. Yes. <laughs> following people like Ivan Illich myself, since uh, I point out this audio cassette version of a CBC broadcast you did on Illich, uh, and even prior to that, um, 
I was telling uh, for 25 years in campus ministry, uh, many of the alumni who've gone through Geneseo, the University of Geneseo, uh, south of Rochester, had heard me say that your recordings taken together, a fabulous series on science, uh, the greatest the greatest work, I think bringing Simone Weil's work to the public, so many others, John Milbank, William Cavanaugh, names that many of the people watching this would know, that to look at your interviews and your work with the CBC that are at your blog you'll mention, is a college education unto itself. And I mean that, and I've said that so many times that um, I really believe that. So add to that, David. Well, <laughs> I'm very flattered. And and that was always the thing that pleased me most, probably, was that somehow I acquired graduate students <laughs> through CBC Radio. But, and, you know, that was perhaps my primary audience was people who followed what I was doing Mm -hmm. But I had a long career at CBC Radio. I was I started in 1971, and it didn't all happen at once, obviously. But I found a situation at this show called Ideas, which had been on the CBC in some incarnation, going all the way back to the 50s, hmm. and uh, was very lucky in in the the colleagues I had there, and was more or less given my head after 1980 to explore. So all the programs you mentioned uh, came about in that way, right? And I was able to develop longer, long forms and really explore in, in various contemporary bodies of thought. And uh, so that lasted until 2012, The when I retired, the Above all, the influences that were exerted on me was that of Ivan Illich. Wow, yeah. And he had, um, through, well, this is a bit of a longer story, but it is the story of the book. So I interviewed him first in 1988. Um, that itself was a surprise because he, we had met at a conference he had just done a book called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind, which he did with Great Barry book. Sanders. Yeah. And so he was there in this conference that was really, you know, sort of in the legacy of Harold S. Marshall McLuhan at the University of Toronto um, to talk about orality and literacy. I asked him if he would do an interview, long interview with me. He said, it's out of the question. No, couldn't possibly can I just don't do things like that anymore and so all right and then at the end of the conference he met my family and somehow instantly he said that's well you know, that, proposal, yeah. that proposal you made um why don't you write to my colleague Wolfgang Sachs about that and we'll see what we can do and so the whole decision to in effect put himself in my hands seemed to have occurred in that instant he saw you uh, in the context uh, of your family yeah, yeah in in that and and that was characteristic of the man so we did these interviews for which i laboriously prepared reading every text and and at the end he completely surprised me by saying that he felt that western history could be summed up in the phrase corruptio optimi pessima, mm. the corruption of the best 
is the worst, that that somehow epitomized the West. And I was staggered. I, I thought, well, now I find out on the last day that I, I missed the boat, right? I didn't, yeah. I didn't even it's, know. It's what they call burying the I lead. I know what he was thinking, right? Yeah. I, I, I made him walk. It actually worked out well, but I mean, I made him walk patiently through all these old texts. And now I find out this is really where he is. So happily, we got to know each other after that and became friends. I, I pressed him to, for more on this, and he was then getting older. He was ill. There were many demands on his time. So that book never was written. So finally, the later 90s, I said, well, what if I come with my microphones and we talk it out? And so that became a second long series of broadcasts, the one you just showed on cassettes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there may be people listening who don't know what a cassette is. And it was a brilliant, but just a sketch, as he said mm. himself, right? He, he called it a research program. To what extent can modernity, as he said at one point, be studied as an extension of church history? Like how fruitful is this idea that the church, the Roman, the Western church, the Roman church, is the matrix of the entire civilization? and that you can't really understand it without understanding that. And unless you understand the West as a series of perverse mutations of the gospel, you don't really understand it. That was his hypothesis. Yeah. So he, he, he spoke it out brilliantly. I mean, but it was still, you know, very much a sketch. So, and, and at that time he felt himself to be utterly alone. Huh. So the first great sign that that wasn't the case was a call from Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, saying, Absolutely. "I'm listening." This he was listening on air, yeah, uh, and saying, "This is amazing. This is exactly where I'm going and where I've been and what would become his book, A Secular Age." And there were many other instances of that. You mentioned John Milbank, so Charles Taylor agreed to. I write a preface when we, when I finally published these interviews as a text after Yvonne died in 2002. I'm making a very long story of this. No, it's great. But, but that was the seed of this book that you that I've just published. I knew that I would have to come back to this and go through it thoroughly. And so when I retired from the CBC, the chance was there. And that's what I've been doing for the last well, we're, we're grateful you did. So that's the story. The book, you know, we'll come to it. In one sense, you could look at it. There's some biographical elements. You call it an unconventional yes. biography, an intellectual journey. You know, what you offer is a bunch of kind of hinge concepts, hinge ideas that help one navigate the work of Ivan Illich. Is that an okay way to look at it? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, as kind of a prelude to some people watching this, we're posting this at Front Porch Republic that has as a tagline, David, a dedication to place, limits, and liberty. Right. And a presiding spirit might be considered Wendell Berry, who I know you've interviewed mm -hmm. and is influential in your own thought. You know, to me, uh, certainly limits. You know, we might start off with that. But also insofar as this, uh, the notion of place ties into a very seminal idea for Illich called the vernacular. Mm -hmm. And liberty. He was something of an anarchist, for sure. 
Make some yes, connections liberty. you think are pertinent. Well, I think, I mean, freedom is the keynote. Freedom is the essence of Christianity for him. It's what is declared in the incarnation is our freedom to love as we will yeah. and where we will. That's the very opening statement of that book, The Rivers North of the Future. I mean, this, if I can just make a sidebar here, this is sure. a very tricky issue at the moment, right? Because it appears that freedom is an issue that belongs entirely to the right. And if you believe what you read on the left, not only to the right, but to the demented right, mm -hmm. to the wacko sphere, as I read in my, okay. newspaper, in my newspaper not long ago, right? And thought, hmm, I wonder if he thinks I belong to it. <laughs> you know, but so freedom is a tricky issue at the moment, isn't the moment, right? You bet, it's, you bet. it's hard to think about. But limits are the theme of Illich's work almost from the beginning, systematically from a book called Tools for Conviviality in 1973, which is in effect a call for a, a constitution of limits for modern societies. Now, he doesn't use the term constitution, but he uses the term roof sometimes, right? The right. roof of technological characteristics under which we can live and be happy. What is enough? is, is this one of the central questions in his work. And what are the criterion by, criteria by which you find out what is enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so limits and place. Yes, I, I, he began in later works. I mean, he wrote a whole series of institutional critiques. Mm -hmm. There was a book called Celebration of Awareness in 1970, which in a way sums up his writings of the 60s. And then... There was Deschooling Society, Tools for Conviviality, Energy and Equity, Medical Nemesis. They all took on some contemporary institution, the school, the transportation system, the medical system, and, and called for limits. The final edition of Medical Nemesis was called Limits to Medicine. Right. All those books were widely read and much discussed, and he was a great celebrity, but they're impact was almost nil hmm. in the sense that he at least written as if he believed that a political majority could be assembled to disestablish education, let's say. So in the next phase of his work, he began to ask himself if these things never happen in this neat fashion that one talks about them, but, <laughs> but uh, what is the underlying idea that gives these institutions such a tenacious hold on our imaginations. And he came to the conclusion that the primary idea is scarcity. Yeah. Right? You can't reach enoughness because you have a, a, the idea at the very base of all your thinking is that there cannot be enough. Scarcity is the basic postulate of a modern economy. It's you said, you know, that he had he had various vectors for kind of opening that up. He could get quite specific using technology as a vector and even another one. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's one of his um, most important essays for me. I mean, it had a big influence on me. I had this, you know, in my back pocket from the beginning. I discovered Illich in the late 60s. So in a certain way, um, I always had him... Uh, on board, but this essay, which I think was first published in 1980, okay, 
in shadow work. It's called three dimensions of public choice, three dimensions of public option, and had went through various versions. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says there that the the left right map is essentially about ownership or about state versus market, right? It tells you one thing about about a public undertaking. Mm -hmm. You know, does the market or does the state predominate in how it's organized? So he says there are at least two other dimensions that you need to take account of to even begin to have a map. One is one is technology choice, right? So hard, soft, if you like, right? Manageable, not manageable, mm -hmm. big, small, right? But then his third axis, borrowing terms from his friend Erich Fromm, is having to being, like, does this situation, tool, whatever, enable me to be with others in some way, or does it enable me to have something, to accumulate something? To... So he claims that if you combine those other two axes with the left-right axis, which is pertinent still, mm -hmm. you would begin to have a reasonable uh, idea of, of what you're doing. We can go a little deeper if you're okay with it on the technology, the vector, you know, that you mentioned like, you know, when it becomes too big, we get to a point where, you know, I could pick up uh, a hammer, you know, and it's, it's something I can pick up and put down. Um, right. Once technology is something that you can't quite leave, he thinks you see a problem. You know, I think even that the telephone is interesting, right? The telephone he saw as a convivial tool, you could pick it up put it down. It kind of brought people together. A cell phone might be a whole different beast. You know, I yes. work with college students for 25 years. And even when this light is none, there's, a, there's an awareness, like almost a, yeah. a primitive awareness of that this thing might beep. Can you say more about that kind of that, that? Well, grid? he called that the, that idea was there from the beginning, even in de-schooling society, he called that the institutional spectrum, right? Yeah. So, a library or a telephone exchange are, are perfect examples of, of convivial tools. Mm -hmm. They're there. You can use them, but you don't have to use them. There's no compulsion. Uh, you can leave them also. Yeah. So at the other end are radical monopolies, things you can't do without. If you put a freeway through a neighborhood that you can't cross it, then you're confined but you're confined by that right right if you make your school system compulsory in the sense that you can't empty a garbage can without a grade 12 education then you've that's a radical monopoly mm -hmm. you can't you have no choice as to whether you use it or not right yeah you can't pick and it up and he, it he expanded that in various directions he when he wrote on professions in an essay called disabling professions he distinguished liberal professions liberal in its literal meaning of free you may use them but you don't have to use them you can still defend yourself in court yeah um from dominant professions which you must use right i mean mm -hmm. this is i think something that wasn't widely noticed yeah the, the political side of this body of thought right mm -hmm. it's like okay the political revolutionaries are over here and, and illich is over here dealing with 
professions, right? <laughs> he was claiming that the professions are political. Yeah. That medicine is a political delegate. And that and there had been, in fact, a, a major collapse of powers that the the theory that you're still taught in school about checks and balances and this checks that and this checks that is, in fact, quite out of date because all the power is in the hands of the grief counselor or the teacher or the doctor, mm -hmm. who all of whose services are, or the grave digger, all of whose services are compulsory, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, yeah. That yeah. really your political map to go back to what we were talking about before is is out of date because of this radical increase in professional power. And then then uh, the the third axis being this being and having as you described it. Can you say a little bit more about that one? I mean, I think in the end that that's the the fundamental idea in Illich is free relatedness mm. um, and depending on one another. Uh, but there's always an element of chance in that way of approaching the world. Yeah. Will you show up? You know, when I yeah. need you, what, <laughs> what I can't be guaranteed a friend. I can't be guaranteed community support. It may be there. It may not be there. It's, it's free. Yeah. So we have generally preferred services that are guaranteed mandatory bureaucratized yep. we know how to deal with this right yeah we can't take a chance that somebody isn't going to get this right mm -hmm. the free route is is not it's just not secure yeah the evolution and the increasing dominance and again i'll use the word tyranny of just the word risk right I think risk was a huge, huge for him. Yeah. Yeah. He he knew a, a woman called Celia Samersky who was studying uh, the genetic counseling that's given, that's required. You don't have to take the advice, but you have to have the counseling in Germany if you're pregnant. And it, <laughs> so all pregnant women must be acquainted with the risks that they face. Um, so Celia told Ivan about this regime, and I think it impressed him very, very deeply, because he realized, as as she also realized, that in effect you're being you're making a decision about the expected child, the, mm -hmm. the awaited child, uh, based on a risk profile, which is which doesn't pertain to that child; it pertains to the class to which you've been assigned, you have people like you have the following chance of having the following things. And then, but then you are required to make a decision. You must decide, right? You must right. be acquainted with the risks. That's law in the state and you must decide. So even if you have the baby, you've decided, right? Mm -hmm. You, but what are you, but what do you actually know? Well, what you know is entirely hypothetical. It, it, you know some general abstract um, things about the class you belong to. So he he thought that in a way was the quintessence of disembodiment. Yeah, 
that you're no longer in this situation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, most people listening to me will understand that that's, that's another kind of risk. If you don't get the genetic counseling, then you might have a disabled child. Sure. He was willing to live in that kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> another story. He went to a, the home of some graduate students in the State College, Pennsylvania, where he was teaching and noticed on the fridge two images, one of the blue planet floating in space with its mantle of clouds and one of a, a fertilized zygote, a, a pink mm -hmm. fertilized egg in utero. And when he showed an interest the students said these are our these are our gateways doorways they said these are our doorways doorways to the understanding of life hmm. so ivan said that he was very taken by that expression and pondered it and realized that that you know that's how mercy eliada define a historian of religions who yeah ivan read was defines a sacrum a sacred place the the kaaba whatever it is where uh, where you have access to the beyond right mm -hmm. but these graduate students didn't have access to a beyond through these doorways the doorways wow. only led into more of the same these these were scientific facts um so again you have duality as we talked before with gender sure. suppressed the, the the real duality the deep duality is suppressed in favor of a, a sign that's just a sign of more of the same wow well, i don't know if that answers your question no it helps it helps because uh, i think you know this isn't one that has to be get at by life various is, life is ours right mm -hmm. above all life is our responsibility is it not who who disagrees with that um and and if it's our responsibility then it has no transcendent dimension for us that that would that could conceivably um ever gain a hearing right it's yeah. our yeah if we don't save this situation who's going to save it for us right mm -hmm. so really fundamentally the question of of god or of otherness or of is is posed right yeah but i know he makes the case throughout his writings that you know we 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 take our images for the self in the course of history from different things we might say out there so for so many years it was the book right and when he you know this wonderful theme he has in his writings on the criminalization of sin we saw ourselves for many years as a book in which we could read off our inner self. And with the new metaphor as ourselves as a computer, two things happen. You know, one is kind of a flattening out of the self. You know, we could be on or off like a computer, but he also said, like a computer, we see ourselves as shutting down at the end of life. You know, the computer yeah. shuts down. And um, so two things I can validate from my experience in ministry. You know, one is that, yes, young people see themselves as computers. I have inputs and outputs, you know, I, I, I guess wires. I enjoy having, using a fork and a knife and having a meal with friends, but I can, I can also scramble it all up and get my nutrients and keep myself going. 
Um, and the other one in ministry was the number of elderly people who do feel they missed their hour of death, right? You know, they were they were basically flatlining, brought back. And I, I'm picturing some faces of wonderful friends I've known who would look at me through a car as they're getting driven to an appointment two months after they'd flatlined saying, you know, Mike, uh, I shouldn't be here anymore. Um, so, you know, it's, that's where the rubber meets the road on this stuff. It's very real. Yeah. 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 So we me, have, we've had a year of saving lives. Yeah. Where there's no consideration essentially about the whole issue, right? Who, who was ready to die, mm -hmm. right? Who died alone in distress without comfort or companionship. Right? I mean, it's, it's been a terrible, it's really been something, something awful, I think. And very few have spoken about it. Uh, Agamben, you mentioned the Italian philosopher is one. There are others, of course, but very few have, have dared to say that there's anything more important than keeping people alive as long as possible and that any failure to do so is is culpable and you know may involve an element of moral sadism right mm. uh that you know that people like me are promoting a death cult <laughs> you know i mean <laughs> You know, I don't know. It's 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 very. You, you look like the typical. Your smiles and everything, your sense of joy and levity that does earmark you as a death cult leader. But that's, that's right. That's <laughs> just to draw you in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, I I just I think it's been a it's been a terrible year in that respect, right? Um, I, I can't I just can't face this idea that. That people are left to die alone, right? Uh, yep. Devastating. It, it's not worth risking a disease to make sure that doesn't happen. That we just yeah. don't do that. Mm -hmm. That's that's not. It's 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 just you know. Wouldn't that be a nice? Wouldn't be a, that a nice touchstone to bring some sanity? We don't do that. Now, what other things have to fall because we don't do that? You know. David Cayley, your whole bearing is so joyous, right? Um, that, and I hope I don't come across as a Debbie Downer, but the, you know, in order to, talking about things like apocalypse, the perversion of life, Antichrist, um, hopefully with people read your book, the best single introduction to Ivan Illich, uh, bar none, that they can see that, you know, the flip side of this, the flip side of this is, an increased awareness, it's been my own experience in reading him, and an increased awareness for the surprise, for the presence of the other, the gift. Um, I can't think of another author who has refined my own sensibilities in that regard as much as Ivan Illich. Um, closing words from you. Well, Apocalypse, which is the name of one of the culminating chapters, I begin with two completely contradictory statements from Ivan. One is, he says, I have always refrained from discussing the apocalypse. And 
not very far distance in time is a statement to me where he says, I, I can only describe our times as apocalyptic. That's great. And okay. Both those statements make perfect sense to me, right? Because mm -hmm. the myth, the, the apocalypse he does not want to invoke is the mythological apocalypse, the imagination of catastrophe the feeling that god is going to punish us sooner or later the mm -hmm. right the whole machinery of apocalypse which is well established in hollywood and in many other places right where we like to scare ourselves to death um and but apocalypse has another meaning which is revelation mm -hmm. that's the literal meaning of the greek word um and his basic understanding of Western history is, I think, that the revelation, the purpose of revelation is negative. Christ becomes known as Antichrist. Mm -hmm. uh, if you, that's putting it perhaps too paradoxically. But you know, we—the more you try to build institutions that incarnate what what is given in the incarnation, the the more ambitious you become spiritually. The more the more you try to establish life as your dominant principle, right? Yep. The more the impossibility of doing that is revealed. Right, mm -hmm. the more the shadow of that is revealed, you can't do it, right? Yep. So you're thrown back on the original disclosure, which is our freedom to love. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the optimistic side of it. That's and that's the that's the view of a man who always felt that, you know, that the gospel was incarnated in. In our being together, yeah, it wasn't anything. It was the the existence of a community, um, and, and and so he was not a he was not about the end times, right? Right. The end times are a very very confusing figure now, right? Because we we think that there we are in the end times, but I don't think we are. I think the you know, the, the things may end, certainly. Mm -hmm. Other things will begin, right? Amen. The earth is not ending, and and many of us are not ending. Certainly, manufacturing some kind of major hell, it looks like. Mm -hmm. But that even that isn't an ending, right? Right, right, right. So, anyway, I think this, this, this just needs a lot of talk and thought and discernment this theme of apocalypse yeah. well and i, I think, hope i think Illich is helpful yeah as are you david cayley uh oh. and uh i i can imagine you know not to be too programmatic but your book is easily broken down into chapters each of which could be used for discussion let's hope this book brings people face to face around a table discussing these things and i think that would be well within your wishes and we can presume within the wishes of the uh 
you know, the reason for the season that we're talking about today, which is uh, Ivan Illich. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. I'm going to stop recording here. All right. Yep. Okay. Bless you, Mike. Thank you. My thanks to Michael Souter and David Cayley for a fascinating discussion of a fascinating man. The book, Ivan Illich, An Intellectual Journey, is in bookstores now, and the full hour-and-a-half interview is linked in the show notes and available at frontporchrepublic.com. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home